Change. I'm Leonard Lopate. Love Canal, a, a neighborhood in Niagara Falls, New York, has become best known as the location of a landfill that was the site of an enormous environmental disaster in the 1970s that was the result of decades of dumping toxic chemicals that harmed the health of hundreds of residents. In his latest book, Keith O'Brien tells the story of how a group of mothers fought for their family survival and became accidental advocates for change on a national scale. The book, Paradise Falls, the true story of an environmental catastrophe, is published by Pantheon and brings Keith O'Brien to our show now. Welcome. Leonard, thanks so much for having me. Oh, this is an important story. And um, I think, interestingly, uh, people who were around at the time remember it vividly, and uh, I suspect younger people have no idea. Um, wasn't the area named Love Canal after the man who built it, William T. Love, a, a railroad un- uh, entrepreneur? What did he plan for it? Yeah, so you're absolutely right. I think even people who lived through this time have very little recollection of what actually happened in, in Western New York in the late 1970s. And it does go back uh, almost a century earlier. Uh, in the early 1890s, a man named William T. Love uh, showed up in Western New York. He was a, a bit of an entrepreneur and also a bit of a grifter. Hmm. And uh, William Love had a, a grand idea. He wanted to uh, create a canal, an 11-mile canal, that would um, begin just uh, upriver of the Niagara uh, Falls, waterfalls that we've, we know all know, and that would um, end on the other side of the falls, essentially a cut through. And it would be uh, a way to generate hydroelectric power. And at the terminus of this uh, canal, William Love was going to build a, a great new city, his model city, he called it. Um, but it was incredibly difficult to to carve an 11-mile canal in the 1890s, especially if you didn't have the background or the funding for it, as William Love did not. And, then, and he made it – yeah. And then Tesla's discovery of how to transmit electricity changed the plants in another way. Well, absolutely. Uh, you know, the, the ability to transfer uh, electricity over wires uh, made the, the necessity of hydroelectric power um, uh, uh, less important. And uh, William Love made it about a, about a half a mile uh, before he ran out of money and ran out of willpower. And uh, for the next 50 years, this ragged uh, channel, this partial waterway, was just sitting there about six miles east uh, of the tourist district in Niagara Falls. And in the 1920s, didn't the city uh, of Niagara use the canal as landfill? Sure, yeah. It was beginning in the 1920s, uh, the city, also other companies began using it as, as a place to, to dump waste. And in 1940, uh, about 1943, a company by the name of Hooker Chemical mm-hmm. Uh, began dumping its waste there. Hooker was uh, at times the largest employer in Niagara Falls and also the largest industrial taxpayer. Uh, It would uh, go on to great things. Hooker would later be uh, acquired by Occidental Occidental Petroleum. And in the 1940s, Hooker began systematically uh, filling the canal uh, with with its uh, chemical wastes and residues, about 21,000 tons in all. And what were local officials aware that they were filling the canal with all of that toxic waste? 
You know, there was very little regulation in the 1940s about how uh, how one uh, was to dispose of such waste. And, uh, you know, Hooker Chemical owned that land. It was theirs. And um, so, you know, they filled it um, with with their wastes. Uh, Polychlorinated biphenyls, dioxin, pesticides, are they all toxic? Well, I mean, in, in, the, in the correct sum, all of these would be toxic. I mean, we're talking about uh, the residues of, of, of volatile pesticides. We're talking about the residues of something called thionyl chloride, uh, which was a pale yellow liquid uh, with an irritating odor that was the foundation for mustard gas. And, and we're talking about, you know, things like 1245 tetrachlorobenzene, which again uh, might not mean much to most uh, listeners, but this was a, a white, odorless solid. It was insoluble in water. It was also uh, a compound used in pesticides, and it was known to spawn a particularly harmful uh, byproduct called dioxin, which is one of the most um, uh, toxic uh, chemicals known to science. Uh, th- then, okay, it would, then it was sold to the, the town filled with dirt, and uh, it was sold, they sold the 16-acre site under pressure by the Hooker Chemical Company to the local school board in 1953. They did. I mean, it's a, it's a stunning thing to think about now at a time when, in our schools today, if, if your, your school's drinking water tests even 0.0001 higher in arsenic uh, than it should, you'll, you'll receive an email as a parent. In 1953, as you said, this, the, the Board of Education in Niagara Falls will acquire this land, this, this, this canal, now a landfill, and they will, um, they will get it for a dollar. Uh, Hooker Chemical was more than happy to relieve themselves of this Love Canal problem. And uh, the, the city of Niagara Falls proceeded to build an elementary school on top of the canal. And around it grew a thriving neighborhood of about a thousand families. Actually, two schools, one on top of it, one nearby. Uh, and Correct. as you say, rows of little affordable houses. Had Hooker warned them about the possible dangers? Yes. So, you know, in my research, I dug up uh, thousands of documents, some of which had never seen the light of day before. And in internal documents going back to the 1940s, Hooker was well aware that it had a Love Canal problem. As early as 1946, uh, there's internal memos back and forth in which Hooker executives uh, say that this land is clearly contaminated. And in 1952, when the Board of Education first reaches out to them, uh, they immediately dismiss the idea. Um, as they say in, in these internal documents that I unearthed, um, this is not suitable land for a school. Uh, but over the course of that spring, Hooker begins to come around on the idea. Uh, you know, They uh, say, again, in memos that this Love Canal property is rapidly becoming a liability. They're, they're cognizant of the fact that development in Niagara Falls keeps pushing east. There are more and more homes cropping up around this, this canal, which once had been rural land. And, and they decide to, to give it to the school district for, for a dollar. They, they do, you know, 
do their due diligence as best they could at that time. You know, they, they reviewed the land with the school district that summer. Uh, they determined that there was no threat of chemical seepage. And uh, they did, however, ask that in the deed uh, that there be written a caveat, which was uh, Hooker wanted to be released from all future liability uh, based on what might happen with that canal land. There was also a playground built on the property. It was. I mean, this was, you know, as this neighborhood grew around it, Leonard, this was a place where kids wanted to go. And, you know, this being the 1960s and 70s, uh, the children who grew up in this neighborhood would simply get on their bicycles or walk on over to the canal, uh, which they knew as, quote, the playground. And they would play here and they would play on the play structures. They played baseball on on these fields. Hmm. And then in the spring of 1977, didn't nasty odors begin to seep into the houses and, and, and the playground? Chemical smells? Indeed. I mean, from almost the moment the school was built in 1955, there are problems on the site. Uh, children report, you know, their skin being burned, their eyes burning. Uh, on at least one occasion, uh, a buried drum of thionyl chloride, that's the, the compound used in mustard gas, would explode and scatter it con- its contents all over nearby houses. But it wasn't really until 1976 and then after the blizzard of 1977 that these little problems became much larger and homes up and down uh, this this playground uh, began to report uh, having problems, Uh, chemical stenches in the basement, uh, chemicals pooling in their yards and uh, residents became alarmed. Also, rocks exploded, things like that. Yeah, there was a legend on this land that uh, the children all spoke about. They said that rocks would spontaneously catch on fire. Mm-hmm. And, you know, this was something that as a, as a historian or as a journalist, you know, you, you, you have doubts about, right? I mean, how could that be possible? Um, but everybody that I interviewed who grew up in this neighborhood in the 1960s and 70s spoke about these, these rocks, these fire rocks. And in my research, I actually found a story from the spring of 1966, a very small story in the Niagara Gazette, the local newspaper, in which they write about the problem of of rocks catching on fire on the east side of town. And uh, the solution to this problem at the time, uh, according to the highest ranking health official in the city of Niagara Falls in 1966, was simply an instruction. Uh, the, the official instructed any child who finds such a rock, one of these fire rocks, such, should submerge it in water mm. or bury it in the ground. So when did it become apparent that the situation was a public health crisis? By the spring of 1977, health officials in Niagara Falls know they have a problem on the east side of town. And uh, they begin to take their their concerns to Washington. And uh, they, one of their very first phone calls was to the office of Congressman John LaFalse, uh, a longtime congressman from Western New York. 
And the call goes to one of his aides, a young aide by the name of Bonnie Casper. And, you know, Bonnie Casper has come to Washington uh, in the way that many young congressional aides do. She's there to change the world and uh, do do right by America, do right by her constituents. And when this lands in her lap in June of 1977, Bonnie Casper takes it very seriously and impresses upon her boss, Congressman John LaFalse, that he must take it seriously, too. And throughout 77 and into 78, uh, Congressman LaFalse, Bonnie Casper and others behind the scenes are working to try to figure out what is the extent of this problem. Um, but you know they are unable to find funding. Uh, nobody wants uh, to deal with this issue, and nobody is really certain where it starts and where it begins. And little stories begin to creep into the newspaper at this point, and, and they're, they're read by a, a resident by the name of Lois Gibbs, and that's really where the story begins to take a turn. But... Uh the waste bubbled to, back, to up to the surface, made people sick, in some cases sick enough to die. And as you said earlier, children's hands and faces were burned when they played in the playground. Weren't some children born with birth defects? And weren't there also miscarriages and uh, high white blood cell counts discovered? I mean, we're talking about serious problems that were being largely discounted. Serious problems. Correct. Uh, you know, all of those issues you mentioned, birth defects, miscarriages, uh, neurological problems, higher rates of asthma and acne. Some of these residents in this neighborhood had uh, rashes and acne that are only found on factory workers, workers who work right next to these sort of chemicals. And um, and yet, you know, this was a factory town. Leonard, uh, this was a chemical town. Uh, many of the people who lived in this neighborhood were able to purchase their homes because of jobs they had in the chemical factories, some of them because of the jobs they had at Hooker Chemical itself. And so there was a familiarity with chemicals that uh, probably led to some folks looking past the obvious problems. Uh, but by the spring of 1978, it's clear uh, that this is a, a massive problem that simply is not going away. My guest on today's Leonard Lopate at Large here on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org is Keith O'Brien, whose latest book is Paradise Falls, The True Story of an Environmental Catastrophe, published by Pantheon. Uh, you mentioned um, that uh, you, you mentioned Lois Gibbs. Actually, in the book, you follow the lives of a number of women who, by fighting for the family survival, became accidental advocates for change on a national scale. Uh, Lois Gibbs, because she was the head of the Love Canal Home, Homemakers Association? The Homeowners Association, Homeowners, correct. Okay. Yeah. Uh, Lois was a, was a mother of two children on 101st Street. Lois lived about two blocks uh, east of the playground and this landfill, this chemical landfill, uh, that of course she didn't know about when she purchased her house there in the early 1970s. And uh, Lois is, 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 a, is a housewife, as they said at the time, a stay-at-home mom, we would call her today. And uh, her husband was a factory worker. He, uh, he worked at the Goodyear plant in town, uh, standing over vats of chemicals that were you know, used to, to make tires. And um, 
you know, Lois's family is, 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 is pleased to be living in this neighborhood, to, to be able to walk to the school and the playground. Uh, but in the summer, in the fall of 1977, Lois's oldest child, her son, Michael, begins attending school there. And by that Christmas, Michael, who had been previously healthy, uh, starts to suffer from seizures. Now, you know, seizures are what a doctor would call idiopathic, meaning we don't know what causes them. Uh, you know, it, it could be any number of things. Uh, and, and, you know, Lois is, like any parent, very concerned about Michael's health. I mean, the child was in kindergarten and suddenly he's having seizures. Uh, and so it's when, she be, when Lois begins to read about the investigations that certain health officials are beginning to do at the playground. Uh, She begins to do what a lot of parents do. She starts to connect the dots. Uh, Lois connects the dots between what she's reading in the paper and what's happening to her son, what's happening in her house. And uh, worried about it, Lois begins to go door to door in the neighborhood um, uh, with with a petition. And her petition is simply to close down the school uh, uh, there on the playground, at least until they can learn more about what's buried there. And another key figure in this story was another young mother, Luella Kennedy, who believed the chemicals were making her seven-year-old son, John Allen, sick. Eventually, John Allen died, and doctors said it was from a, a form of kidney disease. She didn't believe that? Luella Kenny lived on 96th Street, about a tenth of a mile to the northern edge of the old canal. Uh, but more importantly, her house was situated at a confluence of creeks, uh, a confluence of waterways that had crisscrossed this land uh, for decades, of course, when all these chemicals were being buried there. And uh, John Allen begins to get sick in the summer of 1978, just as these uh, issues are emerging. And, and this, this disease that he suffers from uh, was typically very mild uh, for, for most people. Uh, and every time John Allen had to be hospitalized that summer, he would uh, spend days in the hospital and suddenly get better. But as soon as he went home again, uh, the condition would return uh, with great fury. And uh, to, to, to Luella's uh, and her husband, Norman's great shock, uh, this, this, quote, mild kidney problem uh, ultimately uh, uh, kills John Allen in a span of five months. And uh, Luella at that point, uh, filled, filled with rage and, and also filled with grief, uh, begins to turn her focus to, to medical journals. And what, what Luella finds in the medical journals in the 1970s is nothing short of haunting. Uh, the, the disease that John Allen suffered from, while also idiopathic, its cause unknown, was found again and again and again in scientific journals in one specific kind of person, and that was a chemical factory worker. She saved the hundreds of pages of her son's medical records. Did she make them available to you? And uh, did you learn anything specific from looking at them? She did. You know, um, Luella Kenny is still alive today. She's in her and she's in her mid 80s and she's still a force of nature. And when I tracked her down in 2019, um, you know, I not only conducted interviews with Luella, uh, but uh, reviewed everything she had kept. And and like almost any mother would do, Luella kept 
everything related to the problems that her son had suffered more than four decades ago, including hundreds of pages of his medical records. And so by reviewing those records myself and by having them reviewed by medical doctors, including uh, kidney specialists, I was able to rebuild uh, in narrative form what happened to Luella Kenny, John Allen Kenny, and her family in 1978. And they were joined by dozens of housewives. What did they do to make people pay attention to their concerns? So these were ordinary folks, uh, you know, uh, many of whom had limited uh, limited education and no no history of of uh, any kind of uh, radical involvement in any kind of movement. Uh, you know, none of these women would have said uh, before the problems began to surface in their neighborhood that they were environmentalists or that they were progressive. This was a, a working class neighborhood where people were scraping their way to the middle class, but once they once they became alarmed about what was in the ground and once they became worried about themselves and their children, um, uh, they put everything they could into drawing attention to to the issues they were facing. And, you know, they did all sorts of things. They held marches. Uh, they held sit ins. Um, they burned in effigy uh, the governor of New York and the health commissioner of New York. And uh, just uh, four months after these problems emerged, uh, they will stand in a picket line in front of this old canal, now under constant everyday remediation by heavy trucks and equipment, and they will refuse to move. And uh, Lois Gibbs, among others, the, the mother from 101st Street, uh, will be arrested that December, in December of 1978, for refusing to, to let the work trucks enter this site. Uh, and, and Lois recognized right away that even though she wasn't well-educated, even though she had no background in this kind of work, that there was a certain power to being a woman and being a mother and, and taking these kind of stands. And she uh, became, as one uh, 60 Minutes producer would later say, uh, one of the savviest communicators and, and manipulators of the media uh, that existed in the 1970s. Didn't they even take hostages? They would. Uh, you know, this, this story uh, that I wrote in Paradise Falls really unfolds over the course of three years from 1977 and 1980 to 1980. And uh, um, over the course of this time span, Leonard, you know, they will order, officials will order no fewer than four different evacuations of the neighborhood, some permanent and some temporary. Uh, but the vast majority of the people are still trapped there. And uh, some of them uh, are living in houses that are looking right out onto uh, swaths of blocks that are now completely vacant, just empty homes. Uh, and um, in order to get attention to uh, what was happening there in the spring of 1980, Lois Gibbs and a handful of other mothers will hold hostage in the Homeowners Association headquarters for about six hours uh, to EPA agents. And, and they do it in order to, to draw attention to their plight. Another important figure in this story was a woman named Beverly Pagin, an environmental scientist. What did she do? 
Beverly Pagan was a, a biologist, a PhD level biologist who, who worked for a medical institute in nearby Buffalo. And uh, this institute was, uh, was overseen and affiliated with the State Department of Health. So effectively, Beverly Pagan was a state employee. Uh, but she was also a woman who was at the forefront of a, of a new area of science. Uh, Beverly believed that pollution of all kinds uh, was related and directly uh, tied to many human health problems. Uh, Beverly wrote papers in the early 1970s uh, that uh, argued a radical case. Uh, Beverly uh, suggested uh, that the science showed that, for example, cigarette smoking was tied to cancer. And, and so when these problems emerge just 25 minutes from her house, uh, Beverly, of course, is curious, as any scientist would have been, especially one working in this nascent field of environmental science. And she begins to go out there and she begins to run her own tests. And she begins to come to the opinion that the health threat in the neighborhood is far greater than what state officials are saying at that time. And uh, Beverly begins to say these things publicly uh, in the newspaper and, and elsewhere. And, and by doing so, uh, by the late fall of 1978, uh, Beverly has set herself up as a, as a foe of the highest ranking health officials in the state of New York, her superiors, essentially. And uh, this, this creates a lot of problems for, Bever for Beverly Pagan in the next two years. Were you able to speak with Lois Gibbs, Luella Kenny, and Beverly Pagan when you were researching this book? I was. You know, one of the, the great things about this, uh, this project was not only were there thousands of documents to review, uh, there were people to interview who had lived through this time. Uh, so I did conduct uh, over 130 hours of interviews with the various uh, with the various players in this story, including Lois Gibbs, Luella Kenny, and Beverly Pagan. Uh, you know, I, I was able to to meet Beverly uh, in early 2020. Uh, she uh, had uh, moved to Maine in 1989, Beverly had, and uh, she remained a scientist there working for the uh, prestigious Jackson Laboratory. And uh, when I tracked Beverly Pagan down in Maine in early 2020, she was 81 years old and, and not in the greatest of health. Uh, but I was able to interview her over the course of two days at her house in Maine. And, and while I was there, uh, just, uh, just like Luella Kenny, Beverly mentioned that she had saved a lot of documents from this time period. As she would tell me, uh, it was roughly a file cabinet, four drawers and several boxes. And um, while sadly, Beverly Pagan would die in the summer of 19, uh, uh, summer of 2020, just four months after I interviewed her, um, I did have that opportunity to meet with her uh, over the course of two days. And I did have those documents, all of those things that Beverly had saved. And didn't Lois Gibbs write a memoir? Lois Gibbs did. You know, uh, did that help? Of, it did. You know, memoirs always help, uh, but just as helpful, even more so, uh, was the records, the actual primary documents that Lois kept. Um, you know, Lois Gibbs uh, gave, uh, donated her, her papers, her documents to Tufts. 
Tufts University in Boston. Uh, and so uh, her, her records and documents are there. And, and she also, um, you know, kept a personal journal during this time um, that I was that I was able to 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 review. And so while her memoir was helpful, you know, as a historian, uh, what was even more helpful was the fact that Lois had kept thousands of documents and, and these had been archived in Boston at Tufts where I was able to, to spend days and days of time uh, in early 2020, of course, before everything shut down. How long did the city and state officials ignore their complaints? Well, you can argue, and I would, that people in power in Niagara Falls knew about problems in this neighborhood as early as 1955, as early as the moment they built that school. And so, truly, uh, when, when basements were filling up and the smells were everywhere. Well, they, before there were basements filling up and smells everywhere, there were construction workers building a school and construction workers building new roads, digging up chemical waste. And and so they knew uh, again from the late 1950s that there were problems in this neighborhood and and these problems were were. Uh, consistently ignored by not just uh, Hooker Chemical, but by city officials for decades. Uh, you know, again, this was this was land on which children reported rocks catching on fire. This was land on which children would go to the school nurse and report that they had skins on their faces and ha- burns rather on their their skin, their faces and hands because of the, their their play, their normal play on the playground. I mean. By today's standards, we would consider all of this so ridiculous as to be absurd. And, and yet it, it, takes, uh, it takes widespread seepage, widespread uh, chemical seepage in, in 1976, 77, 78 before anyone begins to do anything. You're listening to Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. Did you know that there are some things that have to be disposed of in a proper way? Otherwise, it could cause great harm to the planet. Let's learn more about responsible consumption and production as we sing along with Toxic Waste Wipeout. Did you know that many things kept aside to throw away have to be disposed of in a proper way if we are not careful the water air and ground will get contaminated with toxins all around toxins come when i hope you're enjoying my conversation with keith o'brien if you sign up to become a member of wbai during today's show with a contribution of fifty dollars or more you can receive a free copy of his book Paradise Falls, a true story of of an environmental catastrophe. To do that, just go online to give to WBAI.org. That's give and then the number two, WBAI.org, or call 212-209-2950 during today's show, and we will be happy to send you a copy. But don't don't forget to make that $50 contribution in the name of Leonard Lopez at Large, and we thank you very much. So 
When did the situation become a, a, a major news story? Uh, because, you know, uh, as I understand it, the women took their fight all the way to the top. They won the, some support from the EPA, the White House, and even President Jimmy Carter. This long-simmering issue of, of the chemical problems on the east side of town in Niagara Falls uh, become, become a national news story on one specific day. Uh, it's August 2nd, 1978. Uh, that day, uh, in Albany, New York, uh, with the support of the governor, uh, the health commissioner for the state announces that he's recommending recommending evacuation for roughly uh, 200 families that lived closest to this old canal to this landfill. That Governor and, Hugh Carey. Right. This is Governor Hugh Carey, uh, who was, of course, uh, uh, not just the governor of New York, but he had he had designs on the White House. He had um, his eye on Washington in the late 1970s. You know, he he believed that, you know, uh, frankly, he could be a better president than Jimmy Carter. And 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 so uh, but this announcement on August 2nd, 1978, to recommend uh, evacuation uh, literally explodes across Niagara Falls, uh, because what does that even mean? Rec recommending evacuation. That was the first question people had. And 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 how exactly am I supposed to to evacuate w with what money and with what funding am I to walk away from this house? And so uh, this this sort of hasty announcement, uh, which had been truly decades in the making, uh, was not fully uh, thought through. And and it's within a matter of just a few days that this recommendation to evacuate becomes an order. And at that point, the state of New York needs to find money to 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 buy 230 people out of their homes. And that uh, forces Hugh Carey to, to, to go hat in hand uh, to the White House and, and, and Jimmy Carter looking for money. And on that day, uh, President Carter approved emergency financial aid for the Love Canal area. Uh, weren't they the first emergency funds ever to be approved for something other than a natural disaster? Correct. This is the first, the first federal emergency uh, ever declared uh, for for an unnatural disaster, a man-made problem. You know, up until this point, you know, uh, presidents intervened in such a way for tornado damage and hurricane damage, floods and forest fires, not for a long abandoned and and forgotten chemical landfill uh, uh, located in the heart of a residential neighborhood. And the U.S. Senate approved a sense of Congress amendment that said that federal aid should be given to relieve the serious environmental disaster that had occurred. So, um, what, 98 families or so were evacuated, another 46 found temporary housing, um, and we're talking about a fair number of people being moved. It was a massive problem. And, uh, you know, the, the, the federal government was now involved. The state, the state government was now involved. And, and yet, you know, this was a neighborhood of about a thousand families. And so, so uh, some were got, stuck, some were stuck and remained to and continued to have uh, sickness problems and the like. 
correct, including Lois Gibbs, uh, the, the mother on 101st Street, and Luella Kenny uh, with her sick child uh, on 96th Street. These, these families uh, were, remained trapped in homes that, uh, among other things, uh, were not only dangerous, they believed, uh, but now, uh, objectively, worth far less money and maybe even worth nothing. Uh, you know, in this moment of August 1978, some people living in the unevacuated streets of the neighborhood tried to list their houses in an attempt to move, an attempt to sell and get out. Nobody would buy these houses. Some real estate agents refused to list them. As, as one said at the time, uh, you know, buyers see a house uh, listed in this neighborhood and they have no interest in it whatsoever. And so, um, you know, this this is really the crux of the fight. Um, you know, you, you've got some people who've who've uh, been given the opportunity to move and hundreds of others who are still trapped right there. Uh, and their kids are no longer attending school in that neighborhood because that school is closed. And they are now, you know, busing across town to a different school and coming back to a house, looking out over a swath of homes that have been abandoned. Didn't the Love Canal story spark a wave of environmental activism that culminated in the creation in December 1980 of the Comprehensive Environmental Response Compensation and Liability Act, which is best known as Superfund? It did. I mean, this was a, a watershed in, uh, moment that, that did two things. I mean, one, as you said, it, um, it fundamentally changed uh, U.S. environmental policy forever uh, by uh, uh, paving the way. Uh, to to the legislation that we know as the Superfund Act, uh, this sweeping legislation that gave uh, the federal government both authority and also just as important funding to clean up uh, hazardous waste sites like like Love Canal. Um, but it also really did spark in many ways the modern environmental movements. You know, um, you know, I, I think you know most people would trace the birth of the environmental movement in the United States back to 1962. Uh, this is uh, the year that Rachel Carson publishes her, her seminal book, Silent Spring. And without question, this is one of the great environmental moments in, 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 in world history, frankly, uh, because Rachel's, uh, Rachel Carson's book uh, makes everybody think differently about the world and about what might be in their own backyard. And, and it does lead to fundamental uh, and sweeping environmental policy changes. The Clean Air Act, the Clean Water Act, the, the creation of the Environmental Protection Agency itself can all be tied directly back in many ways, to the publication of Rachel Carson's book. But that was still However, 20 years yeah. before this happened. I'm sorry? But that was still almost 20 years before the, all the, these events happened. Well, it was. And, I, and, and, and to complete the thought, you know, while this is sort of the birth of, of environmentalism in the United States, you know, in 1978, when these problems emerged in Love Canal, most people, still see the idea of environmentalism as a coastal elite, uh, progressive, or as some critics would say, a hippie idea. And in fact, you know, in a working class neighborhood, 
like this neighborhood on the east side of Niagara Falls. Uh, families would have thought about the environmental movement in that way, uh, by and large. Uh, you know, these, these were union families. These were uh, working class families. And, and what changes with Love Canal, what changes with, with Lois Gibbs in particular um, getting so much media coverage is that uh, families everywhere, uh, of all socioeconomic status, of all uh, of all colors and races, both in suburban America and urban America, begin to think about the world differently and begin to realize that the idea of protecting the environment isn't just an, uh, uh, something for the East Coast elites or for the East Coast liberals. Uh, it is something that affects us all. And so it really is a, a, a moment when that that mindset changes. But the, the law has had a long and contentious history uh, with, a, uh, with its costs, a continuing focus of the Government Accountability Office. Uh, now, the area was cleaned up over the course of 21 years. Are, are people living there now? Yes and no. Uh, in, in the late 1980s, about a decade after uh, the problems emerge and, and you know, several years after my narrative ends, the state of New York uh, makes a controversial decision. Um, they decide to resettle uh, homes uh, on the western edge of the canal, the, the part closest to the, uh, to, to the tourist district, and on the northern edge of the canal where Luella Kenny had once lived. Uh, but they rule that the, the blocks of streets on the eastern edge of the canal uh, will not be uh, resettled. They are considered not habitable. Even and now. So, sorry? Even now. Even now, uh, you know, I've I've been uh, to the site, of course, uh, the streets uh, to the east of the canal are can only be described, Leonard, as an American wasteland. Uh, the pavement is still there. The cracked and buckling uh, concrete of the roads are still there. Uh, there are a few houses uh, that still stand. Uh, but they're collapsing in upon themselves uh, like absolute ramshackles. And, um, you know, this is this is wild, uninhabited land, uh, you know, roamed by feral cats and, and used today, sadly, as a dumping ground for people who are just looking to get rid of old furniture. I mean, it's it's uh, it's it's six miles from the waterfalls in Niagara Falls. And, and it feels like you're a world away. Well, the events you've written about in this book took place more than 40 years ago, but is it fair to say that they are incredibly relevant today? Uh, are we still um, identifying and remediating hazardous waste sites across the country? That's the thing that drew me to this story in the first place. I don't see this as just the history of a, of a watershed environmental movement that maybe some people remember. I don't see it as that at all. I think it's much more than that. I think, um, you know, this is a story of resistance uh, in, the, in the face of corporate neglect. And, and that, sadly, is a story that we all know is playing out every single day 
right now. Um, you know, uh, uh, while we don't see, for example, a neighborhood built a- around uh, a chemical landfill teeming with 21,000 tons of chemical waste and residues, like I wrote about, what we do see today is, is a, a host of other problems, um, you know, including um, uh, you know, one problem that uh, uh, is increasingly uh, uh, troublesome to many people, and that is uh, the, the contamination of PFAS, these, quote, forever chemicals that are showing up in well water, in city water, in school water, in our blood, in, in breast milk, uh, and, and is tainting uh, thousands of sites across America right now. And we can't blame Hooker Chemical for those. Uh, <laughs> you're... You're listening to Leonard Lopit at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM, streaming live at WBAI.org. My guest is Keith O'Brien, whose latest book is Paradise Falls, A True Story of an Environmental Catastrophe. It's published by Pantheon. Uh, Mr. O'Brien is an award-winning journalist whose work has appeared in the Boston Globe, the New York Times, the Washington Post, USA Today, NPR, Politico, among other outlets. Uh, And he was a staff writer for both the Boston Globe and the New Orleans Times Picayune. And Keith, this is your third book. Is it fair to say it's a total departure from what you've written before it and, and what you're working on now? You know, I guess topically you could, you could say that, although, um, you know, I've always been drawn, Leonard, to the stories of ordinary people uh, and uh, the human drama uh, that that plays out, you know, around kitchen tables and 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 far away from the spotlight. And so, in that way, uh, you know, I do think that Paradise Falls, um, you know, is is the sort of work that that interests me most. Um, you know, these. Uh, these people, by and large, who, who fought this fight in the 1970s, um, you know, have been, you know, long forgotten um, uh, by history. And, and yet what they did in that little window of time uh, to, to escape their own homes, I think really is, really is important and really is uh, in some ways instructive uh, to all of us today. Well, your first book was about high school basketball players, the second about female aviation pioneers, but the next one will not be about an unknown. It's going to be about Pete Rose and and the scandal connected to him. It is, yes. Uh, that is my next book, uh, Leonard. Uh, I'm working on uh, the story of the, the rise and fall, effectively, of, of Pete Rose, uh, who... Um, you know, of course, is the the all time hit leader in baseball, uh, and 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 banned for life for for gambling on the game in the 1980s, and then of course lying about uh, that um, that choice uh, for the next uh, say 15 years or so, and uh, you know. Uh, you know, Pete to me is uh, a symbol 
in a lot of ways of of working class America. You know, he was this working class hero from the west side of Cincinnati, which is a, uh, you know, a blue collar uh, uh, neighborhood in the city. And, uh, um, you know, Pete's rise to be just objectively the most prolific hitter of all time and arguably uh, uh, one of the best hitters or the greatest hitter of all time. Uh, and his fall um, to me is, is, a, is a fascinating human drama. It's, it's one of the great, um, you know, American tragedies, really. And I suspect that people have forgotten the details of it as they have largely, when you say the Love Canal, People remember that there was this environmental disaster, but I suspect uh, we'll know little more about the story until they read your book. Um, Was that your own experience when you were working on it? It was, you know... uh, I'm, I'm a baseball fan, uh, Leonard. And, and, uh, so I, you know, I, I, I thought I knew the Pete Rose story well, but there are certain things that I completely forgot. Um, for example, uh, you know, when Pete was banned from, from the game in 1989, when he accepted that banishment, he actually was still eligible to be voted into the hall of fame. And that vote was coming up, uh, just two years later in 1991, because Pete had, had his last at bat and played his last game as a player in 1986. So when Pete accepts his banishment in 1989, um, he's not telling the truth yet. He's not ready to do that for, uh, for reasons that I think are at the core of Pete's character. He, he simply cannot admit, uh, you know, his mistake. He cannot, he cannot admit his weakness there. Um, And, 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 and yet he believes when he accepts that banishment that he will still be eligible to be voted into the Hall of Fame in 1991. Uh, but in early 1991, uh, the uh, officials in Cooperstown uh, essentially move, move the line. And it's, it's voted upon uh, that winter, uh, just months before Pete would have been eligible uh, to enter the Hall, that in order to be uh, considered uh, for enshrinement in Cooperstown, one has to be uh, a player who is in the game. One has to be eligible to return to the game. And of course, Pete is not. Mm-hmm. And, and in many ways, this sets up, you know, the the battles of the next, you know, three decades. You know, this long, this long feud, really, uh, between Pete and baseball and Cooperstown and all of us about what do we do with Pete Rose. In just a few minutes we have left, uh, I wonder what your thoughts are about uh, the current situation uh, when hazardous waste sites are uh, uh, discovered. Uh, why, do we, why is there still a fight over what to do about them? Is it simply a matter of money? Well, I mean, this is certainly a long conversation. Uh, and I think one thing has changed since the 1970s and one thing is not. Um, you know, corporations remain incredibly powerful today, um, just as they did 
uh, just as they were in the 1970s. And uh, uh, while uh, certainly uh, a great many corporations uh, have, have changed their ways in, uh, in a manner that has been positive for people, positive for the earth, uh, there remains a lot of problems today. Uh, that's something that hasn't changed. Uh, one thing that did change, however, that has not been good for any of us is the divisiveness in Congress in Washington. You know, one thing that's shocking to me about uh, is, uh, my book Paradise Falls is that the Superfund Act, one of the most sweeping pieces of legislation ever passed by Congress, was passed in December 1980 after Jimmy Carter had lost re-election to, to Ronald Reagan. This is a lame duck session. Carter is done. And these days, you can scarcely imagine Congress doing much of anything in that little window of time, much less two parties reaching across the aisle to come to terms on a sweeping legislation that would fundamentally alter U.S. environmental policy forever. Mm. It's hard to imagine uh, you know, politicians in Washington or Congress uh, doing any such thing today under almost any circumstances. Because even things like the environment have become a partisan issue. Absolutely. Thank you so much for being on our show today. It's been a real pleasure talking with you, despite the fact that the story you report has a lot of sadness in it. I've been speaking with Keith O'Brien, whose book, Paradise Falls, A True Story of an Environmental Catastrophe, is published by Pantheon. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me, Leonard. And that brings us to the end of our show. If you're just discovering this program and would like to hear more about one-hour deep dive interviews, you can access our nearly 700 past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. Our podcast, which has surpassed one million plays, is available on iTunes, Apple, and everywhere else you can get a podcast. And if you'd like to write to me, my email address is leonardlopate at WBAI.org. Before I sign off today, I need to ask you to support WBAI to keep the show coming to you weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m. We're asking all of our listeners who have the means to do so to make a contribution at whatever level they're comfortable with by calling 212-209-2950 or by going online to give to WBAI.org right now. That's 212-209-2950 or give and then the number 2 WBAI.org. We need your help to keep bringing you this unique, in-depth content information you don't usually get anywhere else. And as I mentioned earlier, anyone who makes a contribution of $50 or more in the name of Leonard Lopate at large right now can receive a copy of the book we've been discussing, Paradise Falls, The True Story of an Environmental Catastrophe by Keith O'Brien. So why not make that call right now at 212-209-2950 or go online to give to WBAI.org. You might also consider becoming a sustaining member, what we call a BAI buddy. And if you do that, we will say thank you with a WBAI tote bag. Anyone who signs up to become a WBAI buddy for $15 or more. But either way, I hope you'll call right now because WBAI relies 100% on listener donations. We don't take ads or foundation grants, which allows us to be completely free speech radio. Um, 
So if you tune in regularly to Leonard Lopez at Large, why not let us know that you appreciate what we do on the show by going online to give to WBAI.org or by calling 212-209-2950 to play a part in keeping this historic station, the only one on the New York Radio Dell that's 100% listener-sponsored, alive and thriving with your tax-deductible support. We're off tomorrow, but I hope you can join us again on Thursday when my guest will be Mark Fullman discussing his new book, Trigger Points, Inside the Mission to Stop Mass Shootings in America, and I hope to see you then. Thank you.